and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, a new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ Trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Lippman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Juliette. How's it going? It's good. How was your long weekend? You know, it was delightful. I did some jigsaw puzzles with my mom. Okay. And uh, uh, may I ask what type of jigsaw puzzle? Like, what was the theme? Americana. It was like okay. Norman Rockwell knockoff. We listened to the Oklahoma soundtrack while doing it the, from the more recent. I was uh, going to ask which production. the yeah the recent Broadway recording. That's great. Yeah, it was really great. Um. And I watched a lot of uh, Netflix, including Sweet Magnolias, which you can hear me and Chris Ryan discussing on TV Concierge. Okay. Um, I don't think you should watch that, Amanda. That's not for okay. you. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the very highly personalized recommendations. Thank you. Uh, and all of Selling Sunset, which I'll be discussing on Bachelor Party tomorrow. What about you? How was your weekend? It was very nice. I managed to not really look at my phone for like hours at a time which oh, wow. I found quite restorative. Uh, we drove to the beach and went on a socially distanced walk with our, with our masks. And that was really nice. That was like going to, you know, a whole other, whole other existence. And I did some reading that I'm going to, I have a special book report section, Amanda's book report coming later <laughs> in the podcast, but we don't need to lead with it because there are, there are more pressing topics, I suppose. I want to lead with um, Rain On Me, the new song from Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande. It's mm-hmm. Lady Gaga's second single off of um, her album Chromatics that's coming next week. And Lady Gaga is like really where you and I diverge. Uh, I just like love the tunes and I don't mind the theatrics. And I don't think you agree. I watched this video before we recorded this podcast and just had a profound feeling of disconnection, which I suppose <laughs> is not, um, I suppose is not rare at this moment in time, but I was just watching something that I just knew was just not for me in any way, shape or form. And I don't even mean that in like, a, I do often say it's not for me to connote, like, I think this sucks. And it's not even that I think this sucks. I have no real opinion on it. I'm just like, okay, they are making some content that is directed towards people other than Amanda Dobbins. And that is what is great about living in the world today, that people can do that. I thought it was an interesting video because it was really trying to split the difference between Gaga and Grande. And that was really interesting to me because they're so different. Um, But they were trying to like, seem like they're like of a part and like that part being like female empowered pop music. And I happen to think they're both very empowered actually, like in in a wonderful way. I thought there's just like a lot of interesting strands about this for me, which is why I wanted to talk about it. So thanks for indulging me. Tell me, I mean, I had some observations as well, but you lead the convo and I'll, I'll share with you. My first question was how much time did Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande spend together? And 
there's only one clear shot of them actually like touching, like where they're like hugging each other into the final frame of the video, like the absolute final one. And so I think they probably had like half a day's work together. Probably like four of those hours were devoted to hair and makeup. And then they maybe had like two hours to, to film like a couple of scenes and do a photo shoot. And I don't know why, but like, this is similar to like when I hear a pop song, I really like, I need to hear the vocalist sing it live to like, know if they're actually good. But like, I just feel like that I felt like Ariana Grande and Lady Gaga were trying to like sell me on like their friendship, which I wasn't aware of though. I would welcome. And I just was like, <laughs> is this a lie? And I just had like a lot of questions and I don't, and this is like not new, like it, for the history of music videos, they've been like doing ways to like make schedules work, you know? And I mean, like people who do and no one in the lion king who did all those voices interacted so like what do i give a shit if like people interact with each other or not but i just felt like i needed to know and so at my conclusion was a half day work and probably distinct from the bulk of shooting of the music video you had shared this theory with me before i watched it so i was watching with like my i'll call them my good wife goggles you know of just sure. when juliana margulies and our team we were just not on the same screen and i think that you were right that they are not together very much at all. I thought you were going to say that they spent no time, that the entire thing was green screened and that their heads were on, they put their faces on the heads of two people hugging at the end who weren't them. <laughs> um, some of that is just because they seem to really have delineated like this is Lady Gaga's verse and this yeah. is Ariana Grande's verse and like Lady Gaga will be dancing with this set and Ariana Grande will be dancing with this set. And it, it to me seemed more like a billing situation, right? Like they need to be on equal footing. So they each need to get their own time and their own space to shine. There's also to that point, no harmonizing. There's almost no vocal blending either. It's like on and off. So like clearly they weren't together in the studio, but again, that's very common, but right. like it, it wasn't an attempt to like take what's great about Lady Gaga. What's great about Lady, uh, about Ariana Grande and like create something new it was really trying to just like find a place for them to intersect. And they did it successfully. Very catchy song, entertaining enough video directed by Roberto Rodriguez, who did this justice league or the suicide squad. One of those movies. I think he did suicide squad. If, if I recall correctly. Yes. Um, he did not do uh, justice league because that became a whole other Zack Snyder thing that, that you don't right, want to be a part of. Yeah. Check out the big picture for more on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he, uh, he, I just thought it was like a very, it was just such a throwback video. It felt so weird in quarantine. Like it was so over the top and opulent and it was what we were asking for really high production value, mm -hmm. and, but it, it just, I was sort of like gobsmacked by it. I was like, wow, I haven't seen anything that looks like this in a really long time. So Roberto Rodriguez did Alita Battle Angel, mm. which is which was the one with that had a lot of memes um, yes. from earlier last year, and also apparently directed the eyes. right certain episodes of The Mandalorian and also uh, many other movies. I was struck by how old school Lady Gaga this felt to me, and I said this after the first song and video, which now I can't remember the name of. Stupid Love. Frankly, Right. I have great, not revisited it since I song. watched it um, in studio before recording jam session. The last time we talked about Lady Gaga, she went through the Joanne phase and the star is born phase and was doing something that was less high concept 
over the top theatrical Lady Gaga from, and now she seems to be going back to an area of Lady Gaga that was very successful for her. So I completely understand why she is doing it. Um, but I do always think it's interesting when people try something new and they're like, Nope, you know what? I'm, I'm going back to, to what worked. Yeah. And she's had a bunch of big flops, right? Like before stars born, she had a lot of misses and they were still popular because she's Lady Gaga, but like art pop, not a hit. Joanne, not breaking down the doors of your record store that doesn't exist anymore. Like she, it just, she needed to go back to it, but like, I'm really enjoying it. I, I just think that the thing that's also really interesting to me is I think there's so much more for Lady Gaga to gain from having Ariana Grande on a song versus vice versa. And I recall you and I like four or five years ago mm-hmm. being like, why did, why is Ariana Grande so popular? Like, why does like the generation beneath us like care about her so much? But now I just feel like she's been on a run for the last two years that unfortunately has included a lot of tragedy, but also a lot of absolute hits that she, I think I got to put her in like top 10 most famous pop stars in like definitely top 25 celebrities right now. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think even at the time, I I believe we had the conversation with Allison Davis. Yeah. And we were like, can you explain it to us? And Allison Davis very politely was just like, you guys are old. And that's why. Um, But she is has for a long time been the like the Katy Perry or the mega pop store for a generation like slightly below ours. And that involves both the music, which I really love that that early Ariana Grande album. Me too. Um, but, and, and obviously she has a lot of hits, but she has also figured out how to be a pop star and a social media star and do all the narrative aspects in a way that speak to a lot of people. Like in retrospect, it's ridiculous how much time we all spent talking about Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson and they're very, I know. Sh- you know, short affair but full of love, it would seem, and Harry Potter references. But they knew exactly, like, people were very invested in that. And I do think that the kind of the outside narrative affects how people respond, especially to pop stars. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I was watching her Instagram immediately after this video came out to see how how they were promoting it. Mostly just very curious about if, like, they actually like each other, which I think they do. And she was doing the choreography with her brother in her backyard. And then her mom comes in and joins in as well. And she, I was just like, Oh, this is very sweet. And she just, I don't know. She just seems nice. She was so maligned early, uh, earlier on. Like remember Jezebel had that post about why is Ariana, is Ariana Grande a giant baby? Cause she was like always being carried by her security. Let me and- just say great blog post, great blog post. And, and yeah. also like adds into the mystique. I mean, don't forget the donut scandal yeah. when she was I think like, we talked about that a few months ago too. the donut licking. Oh, I think yeah. we wanted to, that was a, our, one of our end of the decade conversations. I believe it was <laughs> she's, there have been a lot of phases to Ariana Grande and you don't really see that kind of longevity in like this social media age, you know, we're more used to kind of being fixated with people for a few months and then moving on to the next thing. And she has weathered a lot and survived a lot of tragedy. And, and I agree at this point is lending her cred to Lady Gaga to an extent, which is not something that I think we would have predicted a decade. No, I think she also really is intent on having her own voice, which I think is cool. Obviously, um, she talks to her fans directly a lot on her social media. And then when the video with Bieber came out a couple weeks ago, stuck with you, 
she tweeted that she had not approved and was not happy about Carol Baskin being in the video because of, I think, the animal cruelty. And okay. That, and, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm pro Ariana Grande. I know this is like not a revelation because she's so popular, but like, it just took me a long time and she's really won me over. So that's where I'm at right now with Ariana Grande, I think in case you're great. wondering. I support you. It's important to have new things to be excited <laughs> about or to, you know, go on a journey with people. It's, this has been a several year rewarding relationship now. So I think that's great, Julia. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's really nice of you. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the paparazzi. There's a New York Times article by Allie Jones that talks about how much they are um, making and like what the paparazzi scene is like right now with all the celebrities quarantining, particularly in L.A. Yeah. So the the headline is what do the paparazzi do when the stars are quarantined? And it's talking about the uh, how recent events have affected this particular industry, which relies on uh, people being out in the world and in public spaces, because that's where paparazzi wait to take pictures of them. And so it's it's a re- it's an interesting piece. And it's a little bit of behind the scenes. And as people who consume a lot of these images, I think it's worthwhile to know how they're taken and how much they're paid for them. It's a little bit seedy, too. We always keep that in mind when talking about this stuff that we consume, even though we know it's bad for us. But I thought just, I thought the prices were really interesting because they have certainly dropped according to the paparazzi. And that's a little bit because of the fact that there are fewer people out in the world, but also just because tabloids will now take everything from Instagram. And since more celebrities are just putting things directly on Instagram and the stuff that you can get out in the world is just mask content. The the paparazzi value has dropped dramatically. Interesting. And also there there a lot of them are um relocating as well because the celebrities have relocated, particularly in New York, where a lot of them have decamped to summer homes, beach homes, et cetera. Like one of the main re- I think references was Sarah Jessica Parker, who like was kind of a celebrity mainstay. And you know, the Daily Mail and page six bore that out. Like they have a lot of pictures of SJP for many years and haven't seen her in a while. You know, you just, and that's because she's, she's not available to be photographed. So a lot of the photographers have also relocated essentially. It's pretty wild how just entire industries on every level are being disrupted because of everyone's lives being incredibly disruptive. And I would say the paparazzi photos are the least of the concerns. However, it is, it is people who, you know, these are their jobs. Yes, it's true. I, and just to give some specifics. So one of the paparazzi is talking about how uh, exclusive Hugh Jackman photos used to be worth, quote, a couple hundred dollars. But now he could be competing with multiple photographers and the value comes crashing down. He said, you're working for 50 bucks or something. And they use an example of Sarah Silverman, who is still in New York and showed up on her balcony for like in New York City. They do the traditional seven o'clock like the the newly traditional but now traditional applauding for um for healthcare workers and service workers and so you can get a picture of Sarah Silverman out on the balcony doing that once but it's it's like the old saw of the celebrities who wear the um same clothes every day because the photos are worthless but now it's like if she's doing the same thing every day the photos are worth worthless and all the celebrities even if you can get access to them they're doing the same thing with the masks so the photos have less value. He does talk a little bit also about how certain celebrities are responding to this by seeking out photos as well. And this is a thing that we have talked about a lot that, 
many or at least some of the paparazzi photos that you see are staged and they yeah. are the celebrities are working with the paparazzi or calling them coordinating it and there are like various reasonings for that one might be is that theoretically if you're a celebrity you have a bit of control if you call the paparazzi you give them a photograph then they might go away though that's like kind of a faustian bargain um and then also if you want exposure that's i mean this is how a lot of celebrities get famous so there are a few of these the the piece points out that there were some very flattering photographs of Kylie Jenner taken a few days after not so flattering photographs of Kylie Jenner showed up in the in the wild and they suspect that a few more photos like that are happening or will also happening though it's interesting they talk about Ben Affleck and Anadarma specifically you know my number one interest and this paparazzo does he's like I think Ben Affleck um, there are people outside of his house every single day, whether he calls them or not. So he doesn't necessarily think that they are working with them. That's about very valuable insight. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of two quick things we should just mention. Yes. Chloe Kardashian, new face. That was quite something. I think you and I really try not to talk too aggressively about changes in appearance or, you know, or or plastic surgery or weight loss or judgment, you know, there's plenty of that in the world and people just got to like be healthy and make decisions for themselves. But the nature of the Chloe Kardashian, Kardashian photograph and reveal, it was meant to be commented on. And that was quite something. It was shocking. It, I mean, my guess is they're just really intense photo editing and like mm-hmm. also some pretty good makeup. Um, the reasons I personally hate the Kardashians so much is they pretend to be committed to like empowerment and like making women feel better about the bodies and the faces that they have. But Chloe and Kylie in particular are such a testament to how they are constantly trying to like, um, change their image and maintain a certain, uh, look that is like completely unattainable for everyone, like including them. Cause it's not real. And it fucking drives me absolutely crazy. And those pictures were wild. It looked nothing like her at all. She, and she looked like look the, she looked like the TikTok star Addison Ray to me. She looked like a video game avatar, yeah, and not a particularly well drawn one. That's sort of insulting to video games, which are not a medium I spend a lot of time consuming, but do require a lot of art. And to the extent that it was just like unnatural, not in the sense that you know having work done is the only way to or not having worked on is the only way to be yourself, but it just looked like not a, a person. It looked really unsettling. Ridiculous. And, and rid- I, I don't understand it. It, it was strange. If, it if she's happy, I guess I really, if that's how other people want to look and if it makes her happy, then for her, it's fine, I guess. Reminds me of the great Cheryl Crow song. If it makes, if you, it makes happy, you happy, why the hell are you so sad? You know, I agree <laughs> with you that to the extent that it sets standards and expectations for other women, it is really not helpful. And talk, we were talking earlier about maybe not role models, but people being responsible spokespeople or um avatars for the larger world. And, and some people are, and some people are, are not seeking that and maybe shouldn't be treated as such. And I think, 
I I would hope that no one would look at Khloe Kardashian as a way to manage your own uh, self-image. I think that seems like a pretty complicated road to follow. It would say, I think you would mostly be setting yourself up to failure. She has access to um, services and makeup and stuff that most people don't have access to or time for if they have a job so, or kids. So she, you know, she's got a child, obviously. I don't know. Just very dispiriting. I hate the Kardashians. Um, they're just really not for me. Um, on the Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas tip stories this weekend about how he introduced her to the kids and wants them, wants the kids to spend more time with them. Be happy guys. I'm, I'm looking at a photograph of the five of them on a walk together. Yeah. So it, it happened. There, there you go. I, it's, we wish the best for everybody. And <laughs> we wish also self-respect for everyone in your own life, you know, look to yourself for happiness. Seriously, seriously. Don't put stock in these people, put stock in yourself. There we go. Oh goodness. Goodness gracious. Um, let's move on. Let's move on to what you're, what we're reading. Amanda, what are you reading right now? Well, so I have, I have two reports. I have a book report and a book update. The first is that over the weekend, I read The Chiffon Trenches, mm. which is a memoir by Andre Leontali, who is a longtime Vogue editor and, and a close collaborator of um, Anna Winter, who everyone knows is a personal person of interest to me, and who also lived like a quite the fashion life in the 70s and the 80s. And this book is is really quite a document. I mean, Andre Leontali is one of the most um, prominent black men in the fashion world. And so it reflects on the experience of being the, a black man in a particularly white industry. And I thought a lot of that was really insightful. It also writes about his own personal upbringing, which I, I found some of the history to be really heartbreaking. And then it also just name drops like a lot about Karl Lagerfeld and Andy Warhol and Yves Saint Laurent and then Anna Wintour. And it writes a lot about his relationship with Anna Wintour and with Condé Nast and is both extremely sad and also just the most perspectiveless thing that I've ever seen. He writes about how he worked with this woman for 20 years and she never showed him any gratitude. And then like a paragraph later, he's writing about how he didn't get reimbursed for his return trip town car expenses from his home in White Plains, New York to her Chanel fitting. And both things are true. You know, that this memoir contains multitudes, but it is, it's quite a ride. And I learned a lot about, the, you know, if you're interested in the in the fashion world, I, I certainly think it's worth a read. It's a pretty breezy read and definitely an, a unique character. It made a lot of page six headlines about him and, and Anna Wintour and sort of him exposing her. So it had a lot of expectations going into it. Yeah. And that's all there. I mean, he really is just one point. He's like, I wish that she would say, I love you just once, which is just a remarkable thing to say about anyone that, you know, in your life in public and just to write in a book. So he like, but also Anna Wintour, who is not known to be the most like emotionally demonstrative person. It's an interesting one, but like the, I, I bring up the town car thing because it comes up so many times like he <laughs> mentions the fact that now he pays for his own car service like five times and and Incredible. he's very angry about it and i do understand that car service from white plains expensive, new york to, yeah. to manhattan and back is definitely expensive so i understand it but 
it's really it's a it's a roller coaster of of emotions in that book. It's also amazing that she I mean, obviously, he didn't only write about Anna Wintour, but it's amazing that her grip on her field on fashion, on fashion media uh, is just so unmatched. There's been multiple books written about her that are mm-hmm. like tell alls. Mm-hmm. And yet and yet she's bulletproof. This book is also just extremely dismissive of the Devil Wars Prada. He's like, it's not like that at all. She would never fling her clothes down. You're like, okay. I, I mean, fair Thanks enough. Thanks for clarifying. She, yeah. So uh, that was an interesting quick read. If you're interested, I recommend it. You know, otherwise I just gave you the highlights. Town car, very angry about it. Also very, very varied life. I finally, I have another update, a book that I've started reading. Great. So many weeks ago, we shared a recommended reading list from Camilla Parker Bowles, uh, wife of Prince Charles. And I've been going on and on about how it was like very hard to get my hands on all these books, especially in the library. I've been using the Libby app, which I really recommend if you are also at home and have the access. It's a great way to check out books from your local library. But the Camilla Parker Bowles books were quite in demand. So I finally purchased from a local bookstore, The Light Years, which is the first edition of the Caslet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard, which is a, a book about an upper class-ish British family starting in 1937 before the war in the in in the UK. So like think down Nabby-esque, but great. 20 years later. I'm loving it. It is exactly what I hoped it would be. It's like, do you know that feeling when you never really know when you're starting a book? Like, yeah. is this going to is this going to hit all the spots? Oh my gosh, it does. I'm 125 pages in. I like last night before I went to sleep, I just googled Caslet Chronicles to find out how many books there are so I know how much, you know, how to parcel out my reading because I'm enjoying it so much. I Camilla Parker Bowles, shout out to you. It was a great recommendation. That's wonderful. I'm really I'm really happy for you. Thank um, you. I'm reading The Rotters Club by Jonathan Coe. I can't remember okay. if I've mentioned that. I'm also, which I also got via the Libby app on my iPad. And it's like so disconnected from everything happening in the world right now. It's great stuff. It's about like a, a group of people of different ages living in um, Birmingham, England in the 70s, like set against like the, uh, the strikes of the 70s as seen on The Crown. And Jonathan Coe just like paints a picture of of life for like regular people in England in his books that are just all so fantastic. We've previously discussed what a carve up. Uh, it's really, really good. It's actually the first book of a trilogy that I read completely out of order. So it's kind of funny. Like I, I know what the kind of postscript is for these characters, but I don't know where they came from. It's really delightful. Reading, reading is remains great. It's, it's a great uh, refuge from so much else. I really agree. I am really looking forward to Jonathan Coe's new novel, which I only know about Jonathan Coe from Juliette Lemon and Chris Ryan. So thank you guys for this. And here is Jonathan Coe's description of his new novel, Mr. Wilder and Me, which will be published in November, at least in the UK. Please release it also here in the US. Thank you to whoever's listening. Here's the description. Set in LA, Greece, Munich, and Paris, it's a fictional portrait of Billy Wilder, the director, seen through the eyes of a young woman who's hired to be his interpreter during the making of his penultimate film, Fedora. I mean... So it's like, do you ever wonder if people, are, if people are in your brain? That's amazing. How I, I didn't even know I wanted that book. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. Check it out. Um, 
I think we're going to start doing some celebrity deep dives on this podcast in future weeks. Right, Amanda? Yes, that's true, because otherwise we're just going to have to cover people saying things that they should not on social media for a very long time. And we're going to over it. We'd like to bring something new to the yeah. to the table. Exactly. So we'll be back with that next week and more book recommendations along the way. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>